Well, the growth chart that was hanging on the wall in the bedroom had slipped from the heat of summer. The tape on the corners had become dry and brittle. The five-year-old Keith, however, picked it up and hung it up again. And he worked meticulously in order to hang it straight. And when he had finally gotten the chart back up on the wall, he stood his sister against it to measure her height. Mommy, Mommy, Tammy is 40 inches tall, he screamed as he burst into the kitchen. I measured her. His mom replied, sweetheart, that's impossible. She's only three years old. Let's go see. So as they walked back into that playroom, the mother's suspicions were confirmed. Despite all of his great efforts to hang that chart straight on the wall, Keith had failed to set it at the proper height, and it was several inches too low. Well, here's a question I want to pose as we engage with God's word today. Engaging one's spiritual status, maybe yours, my own. Is it possible that we too easily and quite frequently make the same mistake as little Keith did? Compared to a shortened scale, we may appear spiritually taller than we actually are. Our standard of measure may in fact be several inches too low. In our text today, we're placed into such a comparison of measure. If you have your Bibles with you, and you should, please turn to Luke chapter 18. And we're going to look at verses 9 to 14 this morning. Take a moment and follow along with me as I read through these verses. Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you that this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. As we approach this passage of Scripture, it would help us immensely to have a bit of background. Throughout this portion of Luke, Jesus is speaking to people in parables. He did this because of the widespread rejection that he was receiving, especially among the religious leaders. Parables were used by Jesus as teaching tools to make theological and practical points. Couched here in the midst of Jesus' teaching on prayer is our passage. However, I do not believe that the main point of this parable 
is prayer. It's about one's attitude in prayer as evidence of a heart that is clothed in abject penitence. The soil, the good soil necessary for true saving faith. That's what's at the heart of this story. It makes the transition from Jesus' teaching on the Father's acknowledgement of the prayers of the faithful to the requirement for entering into the kingdom, which is childlike faith. That is, the faith which places complete and utter dependence upon God for its consummation. Now, the key begins to unfold here in verse 8. If you back up to verse 8 in the second part of the verse, we read these words. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find the faith on the earth? In your Bibles, it might say faith on the earth, but literally, it's the faith on the earth. And then it continues into verse 9. After he asked that question, he says, and he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So here's Jesus. When the Son of Man comes, will he find the faith on the earth? And he told this parable to certain ones, it says. Literally, it says, whoever the ones. That literally means anyone and everyone to whom it has application. Anyone who trusts in themselves that they are righteous and view others with contempt. Now, this is not the main teaching of the story, but the key to the audience involved. Make sure you get that straight, okay? Jesus was revealing a religiosity in certain people that trusted not in God's righteousness, but in their own efforts and looked down their spiritual noses at everyone else. Here is the unvarnished truth. This was not exclusive to Jesus' day. Okay? And so right now I have to issue this warning. As Bible teacher Ray Pritchard once issued a warning... He says, and I quote, please do not think that this story is for someone else. It's not. This story is for you. Unquote. And me. It's for all of us to take in and ponder. And here's the question, when Jesus returned, will he find the faith on the earth? That is, the faith which depends totally on God's grace for his salvation. Is he going to find that kind of faith? Or will he find the kind of faith which depends on self-righteousness? What is the standard of measure? What is your standard of measure? This is what Jesus pinpoints, and it behooves us to pay strict Close attention to this. Our passage here, neatly tucked away in Luke chapter 18, determines the standard of measure for saving faith, and it sets that plumb line. It begs the question that hits us square between the eyes, what is your standard of measure? Because everyone has one, you know. We do. 
Whether you can identify it or not, we have one. And I believe this parable indicates that some don't realize what it actually is. Our minds want to say one thing, but what is the reality of the situation that Jesus is bringing us to here? Actions and attitudes sometimes reveal something else, right? This passage may reveal something to all of us and we may not like what we see. We might just realize that our chart has slipped. Because at the end of the day, as Jesus soberly declares, one standard of righteousness is often revealed by one's attitude of heart. The real focus here is not humility in prayer, but how we are justified or made right before God. That's the focus of this parable. Let me ask you a loaded question. How many of you identify with the tax gatherer? And how many of you identify with the Pharisee? Now that's truly a loaded question, isn't it? But it's a very revealing one. You see, our hearts and minds want to say that we're like the tax gatherer, right? But is it possible that the reality of our lives may reveal that we often resemble the Pharisee much more? Does your unconscious reaction to reading this parable sound something like this? Thank you, God, that we're not like that Pharisee. This parable is a study in contrasts. Notice the characters, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Uh, the Pharisees were none other than the religious leaders of the day. They were the biblical scholars and the preachers. They were well-known, they were well-respected, and the so-called religious standard by which people were to live. This is the guy that you want living in your neighborhood. Okay? Law-abiding, meticulous, morally upright, religious to a T. Make this guy an elder in your church or a ministry leader. The guy looks great, grand, and groovy on the outside, doesn't he? On the outside. Now today, if someone were to call you a Pharisee, you'd be ticked, wouldn't you? Offended. You'd be insulted. But I want to tell you something right now. You need to read this passage of Scripture with a proper lens because in that day, that was not necessarily the case. They were the cream of the religious crop. Of the highest rank of righteousness in people's eyes. The Pharisee is put forth as the supposed spiritually right guy in this story at first. But by the end of it, Jesus declares that he was spiritually wrong. Totally lost, not right with God at all, a total role reversal. But that was Jesus' whole point. The tax collector, on the other hand, was about the, the most despised person in the land. There was nothing right about this guy in this story to the people that were listening to Jesus because this guy was a traitor. 
He'd rob you blind. Nothing was more offensive to a Jew than one of their own countrymen joining himself to these oppressing Romans and squeezing taxes from his own brothers and sisters. He was the worst kind of traitor. Publicans were so despised to, by the Jews that they were barred from the synagogues, regarded as unclean, and treated like pigs, unclean animals. These conniving publicans would overcharge their brethren and were allowed to keep anything that was over and above what the Romans required. They got rich by stealing from their own people. They were extortionists. And not only that, but in order to keep their tax collectors happy and productive, Rome would actually support them in all kinds of wild abuses in their lives, which you can imagine for yourself. Wouldn't you despise that kind of person? Author Ken Geyer describes it in picturesque fashion. He says, tax collectors are the dung on the sandals of the Jewish community. They, the stench is particularly repugnant to Jewish nostrils because the tax collectors are fellow Jews. Licensed by the Roman government, they put tolls on roads, tariffs on imports, and taxes on anything they can get away with. And every time you turn around, they have their hands in your pockets. And if you resist, they resort to force or threaten to turn you over to the Romans. Now, it's understandable, then, why Jews detest any contact with them. Understandable, too, why it furrowed a few brows when Jesus reached into the mound of dung to mold one of his own disciples from a tax collector, Matthew. Didn't Jesus know that you can't walk through a pig pen without getting manure on your sandals? He should have been scraping these people off his feet, but instead he sat next to them at the dinner table, eating and drinking, and God help him, enjoying their company. Why? What was it about the riffraff that attracted him? It's not the healthy you need a doctor, Jesus explained, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And a sick sinner this guy was. And he knew it, as we will quickly see. So Jesus sets the stage for his heart-rending lesson. Verses 9 and 10. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. Two men went up in the temple to pray. That happened twice a day. Basically every day at nine and three. Morning and evening, sacrifice prescribed for the burnt offering which was laid out in the first chapter of Leviticus. They were to go up and make an animal sacrifice, a blood sacrifice as a symbol of atonement. Sources say that it was a very, very important thing that they were very fastidious people who made sure that they showed up at 9 and 3 every day. Particularly the Pharisees were in proximity that could do that. Now the crowd would go up the steps at the prescribed time. Now I want you to think about this because it's going to come back later. That the sacrifices would be offered on the altar. 
And following the sacrifices, which would symbolically open the way to God because atonement had been made, prayers could then be offered. And prayers would then be offered. There would come a priestly benediction upon the people who were faithful enough to be there as well. And that would be the typical scene. When it says that they went up to the temple to pray, pray would embody all the worship, all the activities that went on there. It was that time and the crowd ascended the long steep steps up to the temple mount, these two men. And the two men are in the crowd and everybody would understand this whole scene. It's a very familiar scene. Every morning, every afternoon, this went on. Okay? It began at the great high altar and the lamb was slain and the blood was sprinkled on the altar. And, and following this precise ritual in the middle of the prayers, there'd be the sound of silver trumpets, the clanging of cymbals, and the reading of a psalm. And the officiating priest would then enter the outer part of the sanctuary where he would offer incense and trim the lamps. And at that point, that officiating priest disappeared into the building and those worshipers in attendance would offer their private prayers to God. That's the background of the parable. And the first thing Jesus begins to unveil here is that self-centered righteousness is revealed by a prideful heart and presumptuous prayers. We're going to see that here in verses 11 and 12. Notice the presumptuous way in which the Pharisee prays. Please also note that it wasn't about his physical posture. It says, the Pharisee stood and was praying this, okay? It wasn't about his physical posture because standing and praying with your eyes lifted up to heaven was absolutely a perfectly acceptable response. It was a perfectly acceptable prayer posture. It's about the heart behind the prayer, right? It's filled with self-centeredness and self-righteousness and God is named once in this prayer while he mentions himself five times in two verses. Look at verses 11 and 12. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. I, 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 Right? Verse 11 says that the Pharisee stood and was praying to himself. What does that mean? Could mean that he stood by himself, self-separated. Could mean that he was praying to himself, self-directed. Better probably means he was praying this in regard to himself, self-inflated. And that's all it was about. It was about him. His prayer never reached higher than the roof of his mouth. In fact, it was no prayer at all. It was nothing more than a parade of self-advertisement a proverbial pat on his own pious back. Kenneth Bailey writes this. He says, prayer according to the piety of first century Judaism was of three types. Confession of sin, thanks for bounty received, and petitions for oneself and for others. 
The Pharisee's prayer does not fall into any one of those three categories. His public remarks are an attack on others, clothed in self-advertisement. Rather than comparing himself to God's expectations of him, he compares himself to others. His growth chart had seriously slipped off the wall. He never made a confession of any wrong here. Not once. He never made an intercession for anyone. Never made a petition for anything. That's because in his own mind, he needed nothing. He never praised God's name. He never gave God glory. He was self-complacent, self-inflated, self-deceived. He did open the speech, however, with thanksgiving, right? God, I thank you. Yet his true words were to praise himself to God, not to thank God for God himself. He commends himself through his self-righteous attitude and his self-righteous actions, but in so doing, you know what he does? He condemns himself in both of those things because of his pride. And he shows first that pride breeds a heart of contempt. A heart of contempt prays contemptuous prayers. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Someone once said that there is no smaller package than a man all wrapped up in himself. Anyone who can compare himself to others while in the presence of a holy and mighty God has no concept whatsoever of what true righteousness really means. The old English preacher of Scottish origin, Alexander McLaren, said this, he said, quote, he who truly prays sees no man anymore, or if he does, he sees men only as subjects for intercession, not for contempt, unquote. Now let me ask you a question. How many times, how often do you look at street people standing in the traffic circles or intersections and imagine a fleeting, just a fleeting now, similar pharisaical thought? There's no, there's no animosity in it. There's no viciousness in it. But your thoughts go to this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. You ever think that way? Just for a split second? Or maybe it's even closer to home. Like the person sitting right in this church. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like so-and-so. How often do we compare our sins, our sins, with those of the worst examples around us in our minds? Murderers or child molesters or that famous Christian leader who fell from grace or even like so-and-so sitting right behind me. Lord, I thank you that I don't sin like them. You see, brothers and sisters, when we use others as the standard of our measure rather than God... Our chart is several inches, miles off. Our pride breeds contempt, a hard attitude that reveals a faulty standard of measure. And a prideful heart breeds contemptuous prayers. It also shows itself in how we view our actions toward people. Another faulty measure of righteousness. 
Because pride breeds a heart of conceit. A heart of conceit breeds conceited prayers. Look at verse 12. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Here is legalism at its zenith. This Pharisee was the epitome of overachieving outward perfection. He went so far beyond what he was commanded to do. The written law commanded only one required fast. Did you know that? It was on the Day of Atonement. That's the only required fast. The Pharisees, however, chose to fast two days before and after the three major feasts, which meant 12 days a year. 12 days a year. They were overachievers. But this overachieving Pharisee proclaims before God that he fasted twice every single week. In addition, he paid tithes on all that he attained, yet a tithe was not commanded for everything in the Old Testament. By the Pharisee's standard of measure, he more than merited righteousness. By Christ's standard, however, it was not enough. The chart was so low. And Jesus realigned the chart and shocked everyone when he said, you remember what he said? Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Why do you think people were so shocked when they heard that in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20? Because they knew in their minds that these guys were the most righteous people around. No one could attain to what they did. And yet Jesus said, it's not enough. You see, righteousness is not measured by a list of what you do or what you don't do. In fact, it never, ever was. It's measured by one thing. It's measured by Christ himself and the righteousness that he brings by grace and through faith in him. We know in our minds that righteousness, that our righteousness is measured only in Christ, but how many times do we fall into that same kind of school of spirituality? How many times do we fall into the pharisaical school of prayer? How many times do we compare ourselves to others and find ourselves with an attitude of contempt? I thank you, Lord, I thank thee that I am not like other men, uh, stealing money from the cash register, having a politician fix my speeding ticket, or having an affair like my neighbor down the street, or even like this Roman Catholic sitting next to me. You ever think about that? I go to church twice a week. I pay tithes on all my net income. I pray. I read my Bible. I go to all the Christian functions. I witness to my friends whether they like it or not. I, at least once a year, I fast from Facebook. I, 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 right? You know, we got to stop viewing others with contempt and start loving them, realizing that we're right in this sin game with them. We need just as much mercy as the next guy down the line, if not more. We got to stop relying on our self-righteous lists of spiritual accomplishments and realize that apart from Christ's merciful saving grace, 
we are all like one who is unclean and that all of our righteous acts are like a filthy garment, a used up menstrual rag and all of us wither like a leaf and our sins carry us away like the wind. That's what Isaiah 64, 6 says. We got to recognize that our standard of measure, our level, our plumb line is the cross of Christ, not the Christian caricature painted by modern-day Phariseeism. We've got to adopt the attitude of the Apostle Paul, who said in Philippians chapter 3, these words, beginning in verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but Rubbish. Dung. So that I may gain Christ. And may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained it yet or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Amen? Paul says, brethren, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I reach forward to what lies ahead and I press toward that goal of the prize for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the attitude. That's the attitude that Paul, once a Pharisee, learned to have. That's the attitude that Christ is teaching about here in this parable in Luke chapter 18. And we need to realize that without the atoning power of Christ's blood and the merciful grace of his forgiveness, the standard of righteousness that God requires is personally, absolutely, totally, completely, and utterly unattainable. Unattainable. Friends, mark this thought. God never alters the robe of righteousness to fit the man, but the man to fit the robe. The standard of one's righteousness is often revealed by the attitude of one's heart. That Jesus shows us through this Pharisee that self-centered righteousness is revealed by a prideful heart and presumptuous prayers. By contrast, though, and through this tax gatherer, Jesus points out that God-centered righteousness, however, is revealed by a prostrate heart and penitent prayer. Verses 13 and 14. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven and was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This tax gatherer has the key, doesn't he? Notice the tremendous difference in the attitude and the action of this man in the same exact situation. The tax gatherer reacts the way a person should act 
when he comes into the presence of a holy God. There's no comparison of himself with others here. Only a comparison of himself with God. We need a change in that outlook. Because far too often in our prayer life, we, like the Pharisees, are occupied with only three people, me, myself, and I. We need to be occupied with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in that light, we have a whole different view of who we are, don't we? When we come face to face with the triune God, our response should resemble every other biblical example, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. When Isaiah saw his sin against the backdrop of God's glory and righteousness, you know how he responds? Woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and I, from mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I don't see anybody else. All I see is God and me in comparison, right? And when Peter witnessed the display of Jesus' power in Luke chapter 5 and verse 8, what did he do? He fell down at Jesus' feet saying, depart from me. Why? Because I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He didn't care what the other disciples were doing around him. All he saw was Jesus and his own sinful nature in the presence of the Lord. That was the attitude that this tax gatherer had. His prayer was true communion with God, for in the light of his presence, he was aware that not only did he not measure up to the standard, he didn't even come close to the standard. And he assumed the proper spiritual posture before God. It was a penitent Posture in his heart. Genuine penitence produces a heart of humility. In verse 13, the tax collector standing some distance away was unwilling even to lift up his eyes to heaven. Notice the man's physical position. He was standing, as was the Pharisee, but was some distance away. He's out on the fringe. Remember now, these two men went up to the temple to pray. But this tax gatherer standing way far away, out on the fringe, probably quite far away from the inner temple itself, he knows he doesn't deserve to be anywhere near the holy place of God. He was even afraid to lift up his eyes toward heaven because of his unworthiness. He may have been physically standing, but his heart was prostrate before God. And his attitude was spot on. This is not self-pity, mind you, when he beats his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You know, self-pity can be an alternate sense of pride, right? True humility is a right estimation of oneself, and this man knew exactly who he was and where he should be. He was a sinner by his own admission. He didn't need anybody to tell him. In desperate need of God's saving grace, he knew it. He felt it in his being. He felt it in his soul. His prostrate heart was worth infinitely more to God 
than anything the Pharisee could have possibly listed in his self-congratulatory speech. And that's clear by verse 14 when Jesus said, that man went down justified, referring to the tax gatherer. Maybe he understood the truth behind David's words of his own deep contrition in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, when David says, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You don't take pleasure in a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. Like David, his heart before God was prostrate. That's what true penitence produces. But you know, it went well beyond his heart. His whole body language bore witness to the condition of his soul. He feels the full brunt of his alienation from God. And it shows not only by the distance that he keeps physically, but by the distance that he knows and that he feels inside. He felt so far from God because he knew he was so far from God. And you can almost sense the intense alienation Again, Kenneth Bailey writes in Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, he says, sensing his defiled ceremonial status, this tax collector chooses to stand apart from the other worshipers attending the magnificent atonement sacrifice for the sins of Israel. According to the well-known scholar Alfred Edersheim, the accepted posture for prayer in the temple was to look down and to keep one's arms crossed over the, over the chest like a servant before his master. But this tax collector is so distraught over his sins that he beats on his chest where his heart is. Now you need to know that in the Middle East, generally speaking, women beat their chests. Men do not do it traditionally or historically. For men, this is a gesture of extreme sorrow and anguish almost never used. You never see it in the Old Testament. In the Bible, the only other case of people beating their chests is at the cross when crowds, deeply disturbed at what was taking place, beat their chests at the end of the day just after Jesus died. You can find that in Luke 23 and verse 48. Presumably on that Occasion, both men and women were having the same reaction. Now, if it requires a scene as distressing as the crucifixion of Jesus to cause men and women to beat their chests, then clearly this tax collector of this parable is deeply, deeply distraught. Clearly this man understands the weight of his sinfulness. Everything about him demonstrates it. He is broken. He is contrite. He's repentant. He knows he's guilty. And there's only one way to get that taken care of in his mind. 
That sacrifice, that sacrifice that was just offered by the priest and the blood that was just poured out on the altar had to be for him. Picture yourself in that temple. He doesn't know anything about Jesus' salvation by the cross. He doesn't know anything about the things that we know about. All he knows is the ritual. All he knows is the temple sacrifices. All he knows is that when that blood is spilled out on the altar, that that's atonement for sinners. And he knows that the only way that he can be right with God at that point is that that atonement is applied to him. He acknowledged God and he begged for mercy. He recognized the standard of measure. He understands the weight of his sinfulness. He knows he's guilty and there's no way around it. He's got to get it taken care of. And that's exactly how he prayed. He prayed like his life depended on it. And really it did. Genuine humility brings a prayer of repentance. Verse 13, second half of the verse. He was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now this man's prayer flew straight up to the throne of grace. Notice the content of his prayer compared to the Pharisees. We don't need flowery or formality. We need honesty, humility, sincerity, and true repentance in our prayer, don't we? And that's exactly what this man exhibited. He recognized the standard of measure. He didn't rely on his works. He depended on God for his deliverance, recognizing his grace as the only means of his salvation. But understand something very critical here. As one commentator insightfully observes, the Pharisee, don't forget this now, the Pharisee had faith in God too. He believed in God. He believed in the sacrificial system. That's why he was there. He believed in atonement for, for sin. He believed in God's forgiveness. A Pharisee didn't believe that he never committed any sin in, in his entire life. He didn't believe that. He just believed, now watch this, he just believed that he had earned the right to be forgiven. You see the difference? He thought for sure his sins were covered by that atoning sacrifice. That that sacrifice was for him because he earned the right to have it cover him. That's the way religious people think, isn't it? It isn't that the world is full of people who don't think they've never done anything wrong. It's just that they think that they've not done as much wrong as they have done right. Isn't that the way it works in the world? For most religions that are based on works. And so they've tipped the scale in their favor and God is going to forgive the stuff that they've done because they've earned it. So what's the difference between these two? The difference is as simple as this. One word, repentance. Repentance. The defining distinction here is that the first man had nothing for which to repent in his mind. 
He's like the rich young ruler. He says, I've, I've kept everything since my youth. I can't find anything I need to confess or repent of. So I'm just going to list the good things that I've done. That's the issue. Tax collector's heart, it's an entirely different place, isn't it? Totally different place. It embodies the spirit of those famous words from the old hymn, Rock of Ages, which says, nothing in my hand I bring, only, simply, to thy cross I cling. Right? That's the whole crux of this parable. The cry of his heart is for God's mercy. Look at it. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. But this is the most critical piece that I want you to see, and it's not readily apparent here in this text. It's the most eye-opening, watershed statement in this entire parable. And I wonder how many people really know it. This prayer is more than just crying for God to have mercy as the blind man outside of Jericho did just a few verses later. Chapter 18, verse 38. We see that happen, right? And he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Ah, but the only difference is, is that the word used for merciful back here in verse 13 is a completely different word than what was used in verse 38. It's the theological word for propitiate or to make atonement for. This tax gatherer was thinking of the mercy seat where the atoning blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled. Picture the scene now through this powerful lens. Both the Pharisee and the tax collector are standing in front of the great high altar on which a lamb without blemish has just been sacrificed for the sins of Israel. The tax collector stands far off, apart from the worshipers, gathered around the altar, and he watches the sacrifice of the lamb. He listens to the blowing of the silver trumpets and the great clash of cymbals. He hears the reading of the psalm and watches the blood splashed on the sides of the altar. He sees the priest disappear inside the temple to offer the incense before God. And shortly afterward, the priest reappears, announcing the sacrifice has been accepted and Israel's sins are washed away by the atoning sacrifice of the Lamb. The trumpets blow again and the incense wafts up to heaven. The great choir sings and the tax collector, distraught and beating on his chest, stands far off and this is what he cries. God, Lord God, let that atonement be for me, the sinner. Propitiate me with that sacrifice, Lord. He's asking that that atoning sacrifice that was just made would be specifically for him. He's beating his breast. He's shaking in sorrow over his sin. He says, I'm a sinner, Lord. I'm the sinner. I'm not worthy to be near you. I can't look up to you. I need this atonement to be for me. Dear God, may your wrath be appeased and satisfied and your anger with me be over. This is what his heart cry is. And that's the attitude in prayer by which any man or woman or teen or child can be saved. The only attitude. There's no other way. That's what we cry out to Jesus 
when we come to his cross. Lord God, my Savior, let your sacrifice encompass me. Let it reconcile me to you, Father. Let your blood wash my sins away. That's what we cry. Isaiah 66 Verse 2 says, but this is the one to whom I will look. He was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You can't come to Christ like the Pharisee negotiating your salvation with good behavior or religious beliefs. You know how you have to come? Like the tax gatherer. You have to come empty. You have to come broken, penitent, in absolute abject humility. That's how we come to God, crying out to him and clinging to the truth that that atoning sacrifice that Christ made on the cross was made for me. It was made for you. Christ is that propitiation. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says, and this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This tax gatherer, he didn't just recognize that he was a sinner in need of grace, but he viewed himself as the ultimate sinner, the chiefest of sinner. Like Paul said, I'm the worst of the worst, he thought. In a, he didn't say it in a false humility kind of way. He really believed it. Now, it's one thing for you and I to say I'm the chiefest of sinners, the worst of the worst, in a false humility kind of way. It's quite another thing to actually believe it and beat your chest and lower your gaze and teeter on the edge and cry out to God for help. What a contrast here. Is that the attitude that we come to Christ with or have come to Christ with? God, be merciful to me, the sinner. God-centered righteousness is revealed by a penitent heart. It produces a prostrate heart, a prayerful heart. Finally, genuine repentance results in this soul washed clean. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, when you come to the Lord, he will not send you away empty unless, of course, you come so stuffed full of yourself that there's no room for anything else. Jesus said that this man went home justified, declared righteous, purified, perfected in the sight of God. Notice the sharp edge with which Jesus drives home the point of this parable. The Pharisee had thanked God for not making him like this tax gatherer, right? That's what he said. Thank you, Lord, for not making me not a sinner like this man. And yet Jesus said that it was this man that was deemed truly righteous. Let's close this out with passage from James. The Lord's brother kind of got this when he wrote these words in James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
Be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Jesus' own words. And this is, is a particularly poignant time of year to remember this message. So that's why I preached it. Because we're in this middle of the 40 days of Lent where we're supposed to be concentrating and meditating in humility on Christ's sacrifice because of our deep, great need. So how do you measure up? Are you measuring your spiritual standing with God by a chart that's too low, or is it in the right place? Because if it's in the wrong place, compared to a shortened scale, we appear like spiritual giants to ourselves. But are we ready to measure ourselves by the standard of the cross? And so I want to leave you with this concluding question that I heard posed once. Have you ever asked God to pardon you the way the tax gatherer did? Through the merciful provision of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus? Or are you seeking righteousness like the Pharisee did, built on your reputation and your moral achievements? Which one is it? That's the critical watershed here. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God in heaven, I want to say thank you for the incredible atoning sacrifice that you have poured out through your son Jesus on the cross for us. And I ask, Lord God, that each of us would recognize the weight of what it cost you so that we could be here today even looking at this passage of Scripture. Help the seriousness of the message, Lord God, propel us forward to share with others that we can be right with God, not as a matter of boasting and according to our works, but by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. Thank you, our Father, for loving us so much that you sent your Son to be the propitiation for our sins. May no one leave this place without crying out to you and receiving it, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.